Hello and welcome back to the second episode of the Dr. Ready Podcast, a podcast founded and produced by medical students and physicians here at the University of Alberta to help students across the Canadian medical school system rock their time and clerkship. I'm Isla. And I'm Chelsea. And we're currently in our third year of medical school at the University of Alberta. Thank you, Isla. So uh, to begin, I would like to dedicate this episode to my lovely nephew, Parker, who is the inspiration and the idea for the topic of conversation and the theme of today's episode. Um, So thank you, Parker, for that. Um, The reason I'm dedicating it to Parker is because I was talking to him at Thanksgiving a few weeks ago, and This little boy is eight years old, and he wants to be an astronaut more than anything. And I truly believe that he will be because he's the smartest kid I have ever met. He's so passionate, and he also just knows about space. I asked him about Saturn. I'm like, what what is Saturn even made of? And he turns to me and he says, well, Auntie Chelsea, it's made of titanium, as if it was the most common knowledge in the whole world. He knew the surface temperature of a neutron star, which is a million degrees Celsius, by the way. Earth is only, or the sun is only 6,000. I had to, I had to look it up. Um, but I just thought so much after this interaction about astronauts and space and their careers and what they have to go through to get to that stage. Um, they have to undertake competitive educational paths, uh, riddled with exhaustion, failure, sky-high expectations. It's a mentally and physically exhausting uh, career and uh, uh, process to get there. Um, and then I just thought that sounded really, really familiar. And so I thought maybe we could kind of talk about that today. Because also, an astronaut's well-being is at the forefront of their careers. It's one of the most important things. Um, And I did a little bit of research about astronauts and their well-being. And there is so much that goes into their health. Every calorie matters. All 2,500 of them. They measure uh, how much they eat. They're expected to do about two and a half hours of exercise per day to keep up their mental health or their physical health. And then in terms of their mental health, um, gardening is encouraged uh, and sometimes expected because uh, garden is good for their psychological well-being. It's also good for the environment of the spaceship and uh, nutrition as well. But um, basically, the bottom line is well-being is mandatory, not optional. So why are we talking about astronauts today? Well, because somehow the gravity of our jobs are of similar measure, Uh. but (laughs) the emphasis on the health and well-being of our medical frontline is closer to zero meters per second squared. I get it. In my opinion. Yeah. In fact, in one systematic review that Chels took a look at, they looked at 47 different countries and found that 27% of medical students in these countries have depression or depressive symptoms, and as high as 11% of them even have suicidal ideation, which is quite sad. Um, If you're interested on more information about physician burnout and well-being in med school, one of our colleagues actually wrote a fantastic paper on it, so we'll link that for you on our website at thedrepodcast.com. Now, our second episode this month investigates some peer-reviewed literature, as always, on well-being during your time in clerkship. 
We are also very excited because we have uh, an amazing guest star, Dr. Melanie Lewis, here today. She is the Chief Wellness Officer in the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry here at the U of A. She's also the uh, previous Associate Dean of the Office of Advocacy and Wellbeing. She's a pediatrician. She's a professor. She's a mentor. She's a mother. She's a wife. And she's a total baddie. Welcome, Dr. Lewis. It is amazing to be here. Happy to have you. Okay, so well-being is a huge topic. Um, and Isla and I discussed it, and uh, there's a couple layers, we believe, to well-being. And the two that I think um, are sort of things that I think we need to touch on are well-being at the individual level. So things that you can go home from this podcast and implement within five minutes of uh, getting to your bedroom um, these controlled aspects of your life. Um, the second is a well-being at an institutional level, so well-being that stems from curriculum in medical school, for example. And the other things, too, that really affect uh, learning well-being are the clinical environment and just the culture of medicine as well. For sure. I mean, I've only been in clerkship for... About one month, but I totally agree. Um, I think there's also two other influences or major influences I think we should discuss regarding well-being. So the third one that I've come across pretty quickly is this unspoken hidden curriculum that we're expected to follow. So expectations of medical students in certain programs and rotations and the culture of those programs and rotations, but expectations that aren't necessarily formalized or told to us in advance. And then the last one is also the well-being of our future medical students. So things that our generation can do to protect and emphasize the well-being of students that come after us, the students that we teach and mentor when we become physicians ourselves. I think all, uh, all three of those are also really, really important as well. So thank you for bringing those up. And with that, Captain Lewis, are you ready to take this episode into outer space? I'm so ready. <laughs> Great. Um, okay. Hopefully these space jokes are not too painful for our uh, loyal listeners. Uh, Dr. Lewis, uh, or can I call you Mel? Please do. Thank you. Uh, let's start with well-being at the individual level. So like our fellow astronauts, medical school can be isolating where it can feel like the hospital walls are your spaceship and beyond those walls is endless darkness. Research suggests meditation and mindfulness can be effective, but how can we find the time? Speaking of regular diet, I was once laughed at by somebody when I asked if I could take a lunch break. Um, I think that my exercise consists of running from one delivery room to the next. And um, I honestly just don't know what aspects of my well-being I realistically have control over. How do we be well in clerkship? Well, there's a couple of things. I just want to take a step back and remind us that when medical students cross our doors on that first day, they are as healthy, if not healthier, than their age match peers across all other faculties. And then something happens because of our clinical environments and our teaching to make you less well. So that is concerning in of itself. So from my perspective, learners are very resilient. So we're not talking about a resilience deficiency here. So I agree with you. I think you have to take your agency and control the things that you can control. But knowing that those personal resilience strategies are about 
20% effective. So as the astronaut, if you will, uh, you can control having a good diet, bringing healthy things to you know, the clinical environments. You can make sure you sleep when you can sleep, continue doing your exercise habits. But 80% of the time, the problem is the spaceship. And so it's folks like me who really need to improve some of the, the structures and the systems that are actually making you less well. So as a clerk, again, I think you need to control what you can control, but realize much of it is beyond your control. I think that's both comforting and <laughs> very stressful. <laughs> but thank you for being honest. I'm, I definitely appreciate it. I think there's one other thing that I was hoping we could talk about that I find has been underemphasized in our pre-clerkship and clerkship training, and that's how to navigate some emotional patient cases. And I didn't really think that this was as tied to well-being as it would be, but within my first two weeks of clerkship, I met this patient in the ER and really took a liking to them. We got along very well. And in that same shift, I found out that that person had metastatic cancer and we had to kind of divulge that information to them. And it was really devastating. So I guess I'm just wondering, say you have to give that patient a diagnosis that you've developed a connection with, what is your advice on dealing with that conversation in the moment so that you're not centering yourself, obviously, but then what can we do later to make peace with that outcome and make sure it's not slowly tearing away our well-being? I think that is an amazing um, conversation to have. I think that over many decades, physicians were thought of as being some sort of superheroes and that they could withstand some super um, hero type uh, issues, but the bottom line is we are humans and we have the same vulnerability and we don't talk a lot about that. I think it's challenging with confidentiality, right? So like you've had a really challenging conversation and there's, there's, you know, the consequence of the moral injury and the moral, dis moral distress surrounding that. But, you know, you can't really discuss it with your loved ones at home because you can't discuss these things outside of your, your circle of care. So being really deliberate about deliberating, about debriefing these things with your team are, are really, really important. You know, things like having difficult uh, disclosures of information, also when unexpected events happen, and just making that a part of your everyday practice will be really helpful over time. Um, other things that are helpful, like journaling, is, is a really helpful thing. And the one thing that I've seen that maybe learners have got themselves into trouble with is sometimes... Um, some of us use like blogs to to debrief things and to express our feelings and our thoughts. But even when you don't use patient names, sometimes the situation is so defining that patients might be able to recognize themselves. And that has some inherent dangers, both for professionalism and confidentiality and patient care, obviously. So you just have to be careful about the way that you debrief those things for yourself and the other thing, too, is I think it's really important to learn skills to leave work at work. I mean, we want to be there with our whole selves and be compassionate, be authentic, all those pieces. But at the end of the day, you have to learn to leave those walls and then be your whole self for your family and your loved ones and yourself as well. And I think that's a skill we just have to learn. Hmm. Thank you, Anna. I appreciate that. So another approach to addressing our well-being um, is at that institutional level. Um, and I, again, came across some research articles on this. So um, some examples at the curriculum level to integrate wellness into um, our everyday learning. 
is a facilitated workshops um, that teach students resilience. Um, again, you kind of said that that's really kind of not a problem, um, but there it's in an effort to reduce burnout. Um, fireside chats are something uh, that's a kind of a new thing. And then uh, even uh, ice cream rounds is something that people are doing. So these group, small group chats where they also take the students outside of the university setting and give them ice cream and debrief these things uh, like these medical scenarios or um, issues in clerkship. Um, what kind of curriculum changes um, would you say in Canada, across Canada, um, would you say could sort of help us improve student well-being at that broader level? Well, I think the conversation about developing those communities of support are really important. So balanced groups, uh, formal peer support, all those things are critical. We are in a very odd profession, and I think the only folks that really understand what we go through is our peers and, and to make sure that we're supporting each other. Um, the issue for me is that I wish, I often think, like, what do I wish had happened for me in medical school? What maybe could have averted some burnout moments for me? You know, I wish someone had stood up at the front of the class and said, Mal, you're going to make mistakes. Mal, you're going to have patient complaints. Mal, sometimes you're not going to be awesome at everything. Sometimes you're going to be, you know, an okay clinician and an okay mom and an okay medical educator and an okay researcher. And sometimes being good enough is okay. But I think there's this hidden curriculum where we talk about, you know, perfectionism isn't what we espouse to. But like, if you look at the research, over four years in medical school, we actually develop more perfectionistic traits as we go, which is really unhealthy because it's unattainable. It just sets you up for failure. So talking more about the fraud complex and, you know, we learn to uh, don't let them see you sweat, right? And we all look very good on the outside and everybody thinks everyone else is coping far better than they are. So I think just having those like really honest conversations and being vulnerable with our peers I think that that would have changed some of my trajectory because I almost felt like I wasn't quite good enough. And, and I think that that's a, a really core piece of, of coming into medical school and, and our professional identity formation. Yeah, that's a bit of a hard pill to swallow because we're becoming even <laughs> more concerned with perfectionism throughout med school. I mean, I, I can't even imagine because the people that typically get accepted into med school are you know, people who are spending a lot of time in their communities and doing a million things at once. So, Well, those perfectionistic traits, that. yeah, they got you a 4.0 in your GPA and they did, got you really good uh, MCAT scores. So it's not surprising that those traits carry on. No, not at all. Um, okay, so we have one final serious question for you. And that is in regards to the hidden curriculum of medicine, which I had chatted about a little earlier. So for example, I'm finding that there's certain unspoken expectations. So knowing what residents or staff expect from you kind of right off the bat. So in the situation where we're not necessarily aware of these expectations, is it on us to identify and navigate them? Or are there nuances that could maybe be verbally expressed at the beginning of each rotation to either the students or the residents? In essence, I'm just asking, how do we make the hidden curriculum a little bit more transparent? And is that something that's even possible? Well, again, I think you control what you can. I think being clear is kind. And if it's not clear what the expectations are, then I think for, as a student, I would take 
that that license and, and go forward and say exactly what do you expect from me? How long do you want me to spend in that room taking the history? Uh, do you want uh, to do the physical exam together? You know, all of those pieces that you're you're not really sure about, uh, I would try and make them explicit. Because, you know, obviously I would hope that your your faculty member or your preceptor would do those pieces, but sometimes in a busy clinic environment or in a busy ward environment, those things just don't happen. So as much as you can, check in with your, your previous students who have done those rotations, check in with your peers who've, who've worked with that particular preceptor, and then really check in if you have doubts so that you feel like you can, can take as much control as you can of the situation. Yeah, I'm finding that that's what everybody always says, you know, clerkship is one of the hardest parts of medical school. And I'm finding more and more that it's not spending all day kind of taking histories and doing physicals that's exhausting. It's sometimes the mental burden of having to repeatedly ask, what do you expect from me? How long should I spend with this patient? You know, it adds to the mental load for sure. Well, it changes every rotation, right? I think as as clerks, you learn to be chameleons. You learn to figure out what is expected, and you and you change every rotation and with every preceptor to try and meet those those expectations, whether they're they're hidden or overt. So it's it's a challenging time for sure when you know clerks don't have a lot of control, and and change is happening every day. For sure, maybe it's on us to. Uh make a document of all the things we should be asking <laughs> in every rotation. <laughs> I feel like I have a, I get worried about how many questions I ask because I ask a question every five seconds and half the time they seem really silly, but you never know if you're going to throw out something really important or, you know, take someone's computer or whatever it is that you, you it, there's just so many little questions I ask and I'm, yeah. but that validates me. So thank you. I feel like I can ask my questions now. Um, so on this same note, because one day we will be the preceptors or the residents guiding our future generation of clerks, what would you, what advice would you give us as clerks now that we can start working on so that we can stop perpetuating a culture of hidden curriculum? Right. I think you have to walk the walk. So if you say taking lunch is important, I shouldn't say Chelsea. You go for lunch. I'll just stay and continue to work through my lunch hour. You have to leave at 5 p.m. to get to your son's soccer game. You have to be overt about your ability to take some control back in an environment that is super busy and super unpredictable sometimes. And I, I think you, you have to demonstrate what we hope that our learners um, will learn. And, and, you know, it's been decades and decades that we have known about our horrible well-being outcomes in the profession of medicine, and yet not, not a lot has changed. And so I hope talking about our vulnerabilities, talking about our mistakes, talking about when we had, you know, uh, a complaint uh, by a patient and how we navigated that, we talked about being totally burnt out or maybe even having suicidal ideation, and so that it's not so covert. And I think if we have these really honest conversations, not only does it like build the relationship between faculty and learners, but it, it it just provides, you know, a lot more authenticity to, to the clinical environment. And I think if I'd had some of those really honest conversations with my preceptor, it would have been okay for me to realize that I was struggling too, and that, you know, errors are inevitable, and we're almost striving to do better. And, you know, we all have that growth mindset, but, you know, leaders make mistakes all the time too, and yet, 
you know, we just don't talk about it enough. So I, I think that's, that's one thing that's, that, that, you know, I think is really important. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So to end off the episode, we want to play a little true or false game with you, Mel, about well-being in <laughs> other fields that can be both both mentally and physically taxing. How does that sound? I'm ready. Mel doesn't know okay. about these uh, this game in this podcast. So this is a surprise for all involved, just so oh, our listeners know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Mel, question one. So in one scoping review about mental health during space flight, the researchers found that sunlight and gifts from Earth contributed to mental health. True or false? True. That's right. It is true. So not only did the research suggest that these things supported mental health in spaceflight, but they were actually used in spaceflight. So other things that they used to promote well-being was having more observation windows, periodic positive surprises, they call it. I'd like them to expand on that a bit because <laughs> that could mean anything. Um, access to entertainment and private communication opportunities with their family among a lot of other things. Um, this article actually has a lot of good ideas for supporting mental health in the face of various stressors. So if you're interested, we're going to post that on our website as well. It'll be linked to the PDF of, or the PDF document of this episode. I would like everyone to note this gifts portion. If there's gifts, you know, I'm, I'm also open to gifts if, if I'm feeling unwell. Uh, I don't think you know how far it goes. If you had a learner, let's say, who was just asked a lot of really hard questions in rounds and they didn't know any of them and was feeling not so great about themselves, if you went up to them and handed them a cup of coffee or a cookie, you have no idea how far that that would go because we are all going to be in that situation and to know that you, you get it and you've got each other's back, uh, I, I love the idea of gifts. I couldn't agree more. I was doing a call shift the other day and I went to go grab my stuff from the OR locker room and someone had brought in a box of just bread that they had made, just sweet bread. And I almost cried. I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Question two. One interesting study that they did this year looked at predictors of mental well-being in professional athletes. So one of the predictors that they measured was athletic identity. And they define this as a strong athletic identity being those who felt sports were the most important component of their life. So true or false, Mel, the results of the study showed that professional athletes who had strong athletic identity had better mental well-being. True or false? False. That's right. It is false. You are way too good at this game. We've got to make, make it harder next time. Um, so the results of the study found that professional athletes who had lower athletic identity, meaning they didn't think sports were the most important part of their life, even though they were professional athletes, actually had better mental well-being, which might seem counterintuitive because why would an athlete that feels strongly about their job feel worse off than someone who feels they don't have as strong of a tie um, to that part of their identity? But interestingly, they found that it's because athletes who had a stronger tie or had higher athletic identity focus less on what their future looks like once they can't play anymore and they also didn't have as many things to turn to outside of their job. So they weren't necessarily um, as well-rounded. So these people oddly have lower life satisfaction and higher rates of burnout than their well-rounded counterparts. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I went to a conference one time and they talked about if you died, what would you, what would you like your obituary 
to say? Would you like it to say right off, Mel Lewis was a professor at the University of Alberta and held all these titles and saw all of these patients? Or would I like it to say Mel Lewis was a super fun mom, she was a kick-ass skier, and all those other aspects of myself that really define myself? Because it is hard. If that's If you define yourself based on one characteristic and it's all in one basket, oh my gosh, that is really challenging. And I honestly, like I want to be known that I always did the best for my patients and I wanted to make their lives better, but I really hope people remember me for other things first. Yeah, that's actually the second time I've heard that story because I I was um, in a relationship with someone who was in med school many years ago. And I think you had told the class the same thing and it had really <laughs> impacted him. And so he had come home and, and told me and was like, this is incredible. That's the type of person I want to be. So I love that. And it makes sense that you would have that higher rate of burnout when if you fail in your job or you fail in your sport, and that's the only thing that you define yourself as, it would feel like your whole world is falling apart. If you have nothing else to kind of say, well, I'm a great skier, so I've got that to hang on to today. Um, So I think that's just maybe to bring it back to medicine, um, to remember that medicine is not everything that medicine is not who we are. It's maybe a part, um, but there's so much more to us and to to strengthen those aspects of our lives and our identity as well, I think would be um, a good take-home point as well. Yeah, even though most days it feels like it's the most important <laughs> thing <laughs> at this stage, at least anyway. <laughs> All right, so on that note, let's recap some of the actionable items we have chatted about today. So the first thing is the culture of medicine and our clinical environments have inherent occupational hazards that can threaten the well-being of our learners. Unfortunately, as Mel said, this isn't always up to us to change, but as we get further along in our careers, maybe we'll be put into positions where we can have a little bit more power and say over those um for those things. Number two, one of the tasks of clerkship is to learn to integrate your work and your personal life. I'm still trying to learn how to do that. And I know Chelsea is too. <laughs> so hopefully we can get the hang of it by the end of this year or next. Number three, you need to look after yourself and have the backs of your colleagues. And then number four, which is my personal favorite, strive for excellence, not perfection. Failure is fun and a fabulous growth opportunity. And I am an expert at failure. (laughs) We all are. So I'm growing exponentially. (laughs) Okay, so that actually brings us to the conclusion of our journey in our DRE space. Uh, So Dr. Lewis, Mel, we are very grateful for you. Thank you so much for coming today. Um, You really have an incredible perspective, and I learned so much. Um, And remind me to make the true-false games harder. Uh, We hope that uh, this episode has given our listeners a constellation of ideas for well-being and things to apply to your daily uh, routine or things to just remember. So um, we hope this episode's helped you. And uh, thanks for listening to our second episode. And we hope to see you at our third episode. Catch you next time.